Please take the word of God and turn to the book of Jonah this morning. Jonah chapter number 2. And into chapter 3 is where we'll spend our time this morning. We'll give somewhat of a review. I know many of you are visiting with us, but we have been making our trek through the book of Jonah as a whole. I want to say this is maybe the fifth sermon. I've lost count. But we are taking it as a complete unit week to week. And I pray and hope that it's been a blessing to you. I know that it has been in my own heart. Jonah is an intriguing character. And you may be like me in day, days past to somewhat cast Jonah aside into the sea um, as, and discount him in many respects. But I think that the longer that you dig into his life and ministry, and what God accomplished in his life, you may find more of a kindred spirit to him um, than what we might at first glance think. I think we, oftentimes we think too highly of ourselves. Um, think much more than ourselves, than what we are. And God will often use the word of God to humble us and to show us that we are much like um, our greatest enemy on many days. And God has used in my own heart to show me different patterns in my own life and different things to convict me and humble me and to draw me out of certain areas of despond, despondency and discouragement and to encourage me in my faithfulness as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, and as a man. And I pray that he will do the same with you if he already hasn't. If you're willing and able, we will stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. We will take up our reading this morning in verse number 10 of chapter 2, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in chapter 3. But our sermon really will be focused in on verses three, or, um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 this morning. And we'll pick up in the next portion next week. But this is the word of God, Jonah chapter 2 and verse number 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to, to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let us pray. And ask God's blessing upon the reading of his word. Father, we love and thank you and praise you once again just for the opportunity to serve. 
Father, greater than an opportunity to serve is simply to know the one true God. And Father, we are thankful this morning, as high and lofty as you are, that you would purpose in and of yourself, and that you would secure by your own Son and the power of the Spirit um, that opportunity to fellowship with such a holy and a high God, one that is seated above the heavens, there now upon his throne, holy and separate and in, in some sense completely other than his creation. And yet you would covenant with us and yet you would enter in, Father, by the, by the nature, by the incarnation of your Son and that you would become like us in all points, that you might be like us, that you would live as we would live and you would die as we should die. I'm in the person of your Son. And for that, Father, we continue to be enamored by the majesty, the beauty, and the glory of such things. Father, behold what manner of love the Father has. And in that, Father, this morning we glory. And in that, Father, we praise. Um, it is by virtue of that union and communion that we have any hope this morning to come to your word and hear your voice. Father, we know that without the power of your spirit, that all we have is ink upon a page. And that at best, Father, we would misuse it and utilize it for our own glory and our own gain. May we not abuse the means of grace this morning that you've supplied to know you. Um, so that we, Father, might satisfy our own lusts. And that we might be consumed by them. But as the word is read and as it's proclaimed, Father, may it go forth with power as you desire. May it speak to our hearts and do a transforming work, Father. And may you stay our minds now from the least of us to the greatest of us. Father, you know in my own heart just the tumultuous nature of it. You know, Father, my own anxieties by nature and as I stand before men. And I also know, Father, by the power of your word and by the presence of your spirit, that great calm that you can give in the soul. So, Father, we ask for that now, not only for myself, but for those that are hearing. Father, for those that are under the sound of my voice, every man, woman, every young boy and girl, for just a moment, Father, for the next hour, may you stay our minds. May you give us, if we don't have, a, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And may you satisfy it this morning, Father, um, by your presence among us and by the exaltation of Jesus Christ as we abide in the word. Father, may you give that fruit that is only yours, love, joy, peace, and a whole host of others. Father, may we pick right this morning those things as your word is proclaimed and your work is accomplished in our hearts. Father, we need you to accomplish this because we cannot accomplish it ourselves. Uh, but Father, we know that you can help us to be faithful. So Father, in the giving and the receiving of the text, help us to do that by the power of your spirit. Let us just labor in faithfulness this morning. And may you accomplish that great work uh, that will echo throughout eternity as you make us more like your son, Father. May we lay up those treasures now. Uh, so go with us, Father, on this mountain and, and supply the need to all hearts and minds. Father, it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Again, those of you who have been with us will remember where we are in Jonah's encounter. But for those that have not been, I think it would be a fruitful journey just to give you a quick review. As I said, we've taken it as our task to delve deep into the book of Jonah. 
Um, the book of Jonah, the message, the primary message, is not, it's unique in that it is not so much um, in the message that the prophet proclaims, although he will proclaim a simple message and God will utilize it to work. But as it's preserved in the word of God for us, much of the message that God has preserved for us um, is in the person of Jonah. So he is unique in that we look into the life of the prophet and we see the message that God would have us to receive um, and we are to hear it in the way that he interacts um, with God particularly, but also, for example, with the pagan mariners, with the fish, with the sea, and with God in the end. You'll remember that Jonah is a prophet. That's what the um, chapter 1 and verse number 1 tells us. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. You'll find in another portion of Scripture that this same Jonah is referred to in reference to a prophecy to Israel. Um, Jonah is a prophet. He is a son of a man by the name of Amittai. Amittai literally means truth. Um, if names mean anything in the Scriptures, and oftentimes they do, then what we have here is a picture of a man who is called by God, raised in what we might consider to be um, a godly home, and God has called him and commissioned him um, within the ministry of a prophet a prophet was one of those who would literally, the, the word means to boil over, um, that there would be such union and communion with God that the word of God would come forth and that man would boil over in whatever direction that God would direct. Most of the prophets are given over to Israel, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. There was a division. Uh, Jonah, in previous days, went to that northern kingdom, but uniquely, and never before within Scripture that we can tell, God sends a prophet outside of the borders of Israel to take a message to a people who are not God's people, to a, covenant, to a people who have not coveted with God and have no covenantal obligations like the nation of Israel. Those people are called the Ninevites. Ninevite is a, is a it would be what is known today as modern-day Iraq or Turkey. Um, you, you would see... Um, the nation, of, the nation of Assyria would be that nation that contained um, the city of Nineveh. Nineveh would be that capital city of Assyria. Assyria, during this time, is one of those godless nations, and even in many respects, one of the most godless of nations. Um, it is known for its violence. It's known for its brutality. And you'll even see that in the text that we just read. As the king brings to the people a call to repentance, he calls them to, to recognize their sins and even the sin of violence, that this was a wicked and a godless people. And one of the, one of the great purposes of the book of Jonah is going to be to display the heart of God and the compassion that he has, not only for his covenant people, but for all the nations. In some microcosm, what you're going to see is this display of God's heart and of pity and compassion for people throughout all the nations as he sends Jonah into the world outside the borders of Israel to proclaim a message that mercy and grace might be extended to this wicked and rebellious people. And if there's anybody that should have been the perfect candidate for such a message, it was Jonah. You see, Jonah's prophecy before was also to a wicked nation, the nation of Israel. And in the midst of that wickedness, God does something unique and something almost anomalous. And what he does is he listens to the cries of the people and the suffering within the nation of Israel. And in spite of their wickedness, he reprieves 
some of that suffering. And he extends mercy to that nation in the midst of the rebellion. And when they should have received wrath, God gives mercy. And Jonah is the prophet to bring that message to Jeroboam. Like the, He should have understood the mercy of God. But what you're going to find is that Jonah does not. Um, or actually, Jonah does. Jonah chapter number 4, Jonah's going to encounter God once again. And he's going to encounter him in such a way to say, God, I knew that you were the kind of guy, the person, the God who would extend mercy to this people. And in, in that sense, that's why I did not want to go. And you find that conversation about chapter number 1, that Jonah's given this commission, and that Jonah, um, given this commission, actually does all that he can to rebel against that commission. Um, it's not just happenstance. It's not just um, apathy or indifference. There's actually a calculated move by God's prophet to walk in the opposite direction, 180 degree turn to three times in chapter number one. Jonah um, admits to this desire and intent and actions on his part to remove himself from the presence of the Lord. That he so disagreed with God that he walks 180 degrees in the opposite direction and walks to Joppa, pays the fare, gets onto a boat and says, I'm done with this office. Um, and he pursues to abandon God. Yet God will not abandon him. God is more committed to your sanctification and mine than we are. And what you see in chapter 1 is God's pursuit of Jonah. That is there, he's there upon the sea. God hurls like a javelin, a wind and a tempest into that sea um, like those sailors, those pagan sailors, those, those, those men of experience there upon the ship um, have never even witnessed. They don't know what to do. They're casting cargo overboard. And in the midst of the tempestuous sea, they find Jonah in the belly or the heart of that ship fast asleep. The, the waves are crashing against it. The storm is about to flip the boat. They've taken everything that they have, even their most essentials, and they've cast it overboard that they may live. And in a last-ditch effort, they find a guy in the bottom of the boat, and they wake him up who will not wake to the storm. They shake him in some capacity, call out to his name, and beg him to call out to his God and to pray to him that, that, that the storm may be stayed and their lives might be spared. I mean, you really, in chapter one, you find no indication that he actually does that. And what you seem to have is a man out of fellowship with God in need of restoring. I mean, he cannot and he will not pray. Um, they look at one another and they're, they're conscious enough spiritually to know that the storm is coming. It is something supernatural. Um, so they cast lots, which was a common way in the Near East, as well as in biblical days, even in New Testament times, to discern the will of God. They know that the storm is caused by one of them, and the lot falls in Jonah's lap. And what you find is not only this personal knowledge of rejection of God, but now the indictment um, of Jonah has come to the, full, to, 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 to the entire courtroom. Not only between him and God, but now they know. Jonah, um, in that moment, says, guys, like I'm the man. Cast me out. Put me in the sea. What you'll find is that the storm will be calmed. Now, God is also doing an active work in the life of this pagan sailors. And what I, I'm convinced that in chapter number one, you see even a more of a microcosm of God's amazing grace going to these polytheists. As the word of God is proclaimed, even by a man who does not desire it, 
Um, you see the truth go forward, and you see these men um, with a knowledge of accountability to God, with a moral accountability, such that they are even worried and concerned that if they cast Jonah into the sea, that they'll be accountable for murder. And they cry out to God, God, if that's the case, this seems to be what will please you, but if that be the case, do not lay his, please do not lay his, um, his, his life to our account. These men feared the Lord. These men worshipped God. These men vowed vows. Finally, the storm begins to become even greater, and they pick Jonah up and they cast him into the sea. And the sea is immediately calmed, and Jonah begins to descend there in that sea um, into the depths of the darkness. Uh, there's some question as to why Jonah would want to do that. Some argue that he was virtuous. I'm not so sure. Some argue that Jonah was somewhat of a sacrifice, a sacrifice, somewhat of a substitutionary atonement for those people. And what he's saying is, is take me, sacrifice me and you'll save yourselves. And some of self-sacrifice. But it seems that in that moment that Jonah is actually just done. He's wearied to the point that where he just wants to die and he wishes for death. And so I, I fully expect that what, what Jonah expected in the sea was to give up his last breath and to meet God. Um, but God had a different plan. There's another chapter in Jonah's life, and that chapter is written and called The Great Fish. This great fish is prepared for him, consumes him, and he ends up even in greater depths than what he was before. He's brought to the end of himself. And in this pursuit of Jonah, through the providence of God, God in some way builds a pulpit out of providence, out of this great sea, and preaches and proclaims His glory and majesty to Jonah. And that His covenant faithfulness to God is demanded, His obedience is commanded, and He will go to all lengths to secure that reality. Jonah is brought to the end of himself in chapter number 2, and we read one of the highest prayers that you'll find um, in all of Scripture. Jonah, it seems that as he's there upon the belly of the fish and that, that, that proclamation of God's majesty is being proclaimed through the storm and the sea and this great fish, that there are seeds of the word there lying upon his conscience. And as God breaks up that, that, that hardened soil um, of his heart, the seed begins to go down deep into the soil and to begin to take root. Um, and that, that seed was the Psalms. That the Psalms would have been those scriptures that as a young boy and a young man he would, have, he would have encountered and memorized. And while they were not operative, while he was there upon the ship, while he would not listen to God's voice through the word of God at that moment, God has now prepared his heart to where those seeds go deep into it. And it seems that they take effect and that the cries in chapter 2 are actually the cries of the psalmist, but to the cries of Jonah. That the word of God becomes the desire of his heart. That in that moment he recognizes the sovereign majesty of our Lord and that salvation truly is of him. And I'm convinced you may disagree. If so, let's talk about it afterwards as we, as we um, revel in the passage. But I'm convinced that this is a return and a restoration of Jonah to fellowship. And that's, that's hard to believe if you read the whole book. You get to chapter 4 and it's almost as if he still doesn't understand. Um, yet at the same time, how many times do we you know, lack a full understanding and even a disagreement with God, yet, yet what we find is that we are called to obedience and faithfulness even in spite of that. That the fruit of God's activity, and one of the reasons that I think that fellowship is restored, because in chapter number four, you actually find him fellowshipping with God. 
You find a conversation with him. And what you'll find, particularly in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament is that prophets often go to God with misunderstandings. You'll find the same thing in the book of Habakkuk. You'll find Habakkuk, a prophet, who is wrestling with the fact that Babylon's going to come in and destroy the nation of Israel, take them into captivity, and they were even more wicked than Israel. And Habakkuk's going to say, Lord, I don't understand. Why you would, how you could use a more wicked nation to judge the nation of Israel. And what Habakkuk does is take a posture of humility. In chapter 2 and verse number 1, he says, I'm going to go on my watchtower and I'm going to sit and wait to be corrected. That there is a humility in these prophets. In the lack of their understanding, they wrestle with God like Jacob. And, and the end, most often, with God's people is this humility of heart. And I think that that's what you're going to see. Uh, you've seen in chapter number two, but you're also going to see um, in chapter number three, you're going to see this humility and this obedience of Jonah, even in a lack of understanding and maybe even a disagreement with God. Um, and that's chapter number two. And we pick up in chapter number two in verse number 10, that after that prayer of repentance after that prayer of confession and that prayer of praise not of petition he asks nothing of God in that he simply strings the psalms together they become the desire of his heart and he praises God possibly even fully expecting that in that moment um, he would die we have no indication in that prayer as he's in the belly of the fish um, that he expects to be delivered he actually says in the belly of the fish salvations of the Lord that he recognizes that, that he owed to God what he vowed to him and that he would give it with a voice of thanksgiving and that God is presently in salvation. That he is the salvation of, that salvation comes and it comes only by the Lord. And he understood that even when he was not physically um, saved, if you will. But God responds. God responds to that, um, to that prayer in verse number 10. So the Lord spake to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And I would like to just meditate upon that for just a moment. But not only that, but that in relationship to verse number 1 of chapter number 3. Chapter 3, you see, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, there seems to be a quick jump from, from verse 10 to chapter 3 and verse number 1. But I would like to just settle back for a moment and for you to think on those two verses together and to think of the Word of God in that way, particularly in narrative. Um, I would encourage you as the people of God that as you go through the Scriptures, that you read the Scriptures as God intended. And every once in a while, stop and think. Meditate. And even try to put yourself in the narrative. Not in the narrative as an actual player, but as a bystander. As a bystander who is looking in. That's one of the great purposes of narrative. Now, for example, last week as we delved into Romans chapter number 8, and we saw that great passage about how God would not spare His only Son, and no doubt that was to draw your attention. Paul was striving to draw our attention back to Genesis chapter 22, that if you put yourself in the narrative, you know, it was astonishing. Imagine just for a moment a father with the details of that father, Abraham, who's given a promise that his seed would bless the nations. And in that narrative, you have a father about to, he, literally the text says that the knife was drawn. 
And that you're to picture that in your mind. It is to affect your affections. Your emotions are to be drawn into it. Your mind and your, your knowledge all wrapped up in that picture. To not only put the data points together, but also to, 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 to affect, to emote in the way that is proper. God is drawing out godly affections. There's a certain way that you should respond and feel to that. But that's one of the great points of history. That's one of the great purposes of narrative. God is the greatest storyteller of all time. That's why your children are captivated with a book, with adventure and love and and conflict and this and that. That's why you love a great story. God is the great story writer. We're not to read Jonah either, just with a blank face and and a dumb stare. We are to, 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 to really grasp the reality that he is there upon that boat. That indictment has fallen. The pagans are, the, the, the sailors are struggling within themselves. There is a conflict whether to cast him off or not. But they are pressed to do that. And they pick him up, throw him over the sea. He is gripped by the ocean. Imagine him there descending into the depths. His soul is fainting. He's ready to give up. And he feels this nudge consumed by this great fish. It now, it, it, it locks upon his body. He is done. He cries out in his own soul there to God. God then responds after three days and three nights and then, then just, just vomits him, the text says, there upon the dry land. What do you think's going through Jonah's mind? You know, as he lay there, with fish innards all over him, probably pale white, wounded, hasn't eaten in three days, weak. What do I do? Where do I go? This internal struggle within his own mind, um, possibly, as he shakes off the dust and tries to reconcile what just happened. A phenomenal three days. But now that I'm back into fellowship with God, where do I go? What do I do? Do I go back to Israel? I don't feel comfortable doing that. Because the command seems to still be there from chapter 1, verse 1. Yet at the same time, do I go to Nineveh? I mean, I don't even know if I'm still a prophet. What do I do? And you could imagine the struggle. Maybe not. I can imagine the struggle. Pastor, a man in leadership, um, wondering if he's even worthy or called to even go now after all that's happened. Thankfully, our Lord comes to him with a word of clarity, a command and what we might call a recommission. It very well could be that he thought that he had heard the voice of the Lord and that when he thought um, that, that he heard the voice of the Lord, he was fully expecting in that moment this correction and redirection. Jonah, I am done with you. You are back in fellowship with me, but at the same time, um, you're done with the mission. And you would 100% understand that, wouldn't you? Like if, if God was to come to Jonah in that moment and say, you're just not the man for the job. You've been tested and found wanting. It's clear that you can't be trusted with this commission. There's a man in Israel who, although he's not as many years in the ministry, doesn't have as many experiences as you have, I will just call him. He's a humble vessel, ready to be used. You've had your chance. Now it's time for you to go home, to be seasoned a little more. And maybe, just maybe, there'll be a time for you again. Like, we would understand that. 
And maybe that's what Jonah's struggling with in his mind. I don't know. It's speculation. But, but if he's a man like we are, imagine all that raced through his mind. But in the moment, God doesn't. And God commissions the prophet with these words. And the word of the Lord came to him a second time. And, and, and first of all, what we see is we see this commission of the prophet. And this commission, I would like for you to know, comes directly from the Lord. Now, first of all, this commission comes unilaterally and authoritatively. It's simple. God commands Jonah's obedience. As fellowship is restored, God recommissions this man for him to go. And that may seem elementary, but considering the debacle that Jonah just went through, it's actually paramount. Like if you're just reading Jonah for the first time, you've not, been, um, you've not been kind of seasoned with it as a child, and you were just picked up this up as a small novel, and you were to read through it, and he falls there out on the, on the land, the question would be, now what, God, what, what do you do with Jonah? And do you send him back? And then, and then when the word of the Lord comes a second time, um, you would be on the edge of your seat to see how Jonah would respond. Will there be a repetition in chapter number one? Will he continue to disobey? Will he, with a calculated intent, say, God, I was done with you in chapter one. The repentance wasn't real in chapter number two. I was simply trying to manipulate you like the pagans do, and I'm going to go again. No way in the world did I ever expect that you would actually keep me on the docket for this as a prophet of God. Clearly, I'm disqualified, yet God does not deem so. God actually recommissions Jonah. If there's any lack of clarity in your mind, if there's any miscommunication, God unilaterally and authoritatively comes to Jonah once again a second time and says, uh, the, the, the same commission, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And Jonah, God removes any question in Jonah's mind as to what he desires for him to do. And he looks Jonah square in the face with regal authority. No negotiations or even considerations from what Jonah desires. And he says, you will go. And while that is commonly accepted among many of us, I'd just like to, just to note that that reality alone is enough to incite the anger in the multitudes. That is, how many people I've talked with on the street or at the flea market or even in just common life. And they would say something like, how dare someone even insinuate that anyone has a right over my life other than me. We are by nature rebellious. We idolize human autonomy. But the scripture this morning and all throughout the canon is clear. Revelation 4.11, John proclaims, according to God himself, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive Glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. That John is clear that simply by the creative act of God he has ultimate rule and final authority in our lives and it is simply our duty to obey. And Jonah is no um, exception to that rule. That God sends Jonah unilaterally and authoritatively without any negotiations, lays upon himself responsibility and a duty even though he may not desire it. And I'm, I want to say that to say this, against popular belief, that, that is God's gracious activity in our lives. God's gracious activity to create us, God's gracious activity to employ us, 
in the work that He has designed for us to do. And even beyond that, He enters into covenant with us with the promise of great reward. It's my argument that the commission of the prophet Jonah is not that of a tyrannical egomaniac desiring more and more and more power. He already has it in all of the cosmos. But that he is a gracious God who lovingly condescends to his creation, enters into relationship with them through covenant, and employs them in the work that he is doing. And even in spite of our rebellion, he in the person of his son comes and the father would spare him not. Why? So that you and I may re-enter into... that we may enter into fellowship with God, know of that grand purpose that He has for us, and to be able to fulfill that great duty, not as peasants, but as princes and priests in the kingdom of God. And that's what He does here with Jonah. That this call, yes, it is authoritative, and it is unilateral, and it is a somewhat non-negotiable, but it too is the gracious activity of God. It is gracious in, in verse uh, number one. That, that, that Number one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah at all. Number two, that it came to him a second time. And then number three, that it came to him in such a way that he would be the instrument and the means to extend grace to a lost and a dying people undeserving, uh, as undeserving of grace as he is. That God would employ him, gift him, Call him. Give him an eternal word for these people. That grace came in the, in the reality that God would even come to Jonah initially. Who is Jonah? A man deserving of such a position? A man who is, has just completed, you know, a prophet's school. He's the top, end of, top of his class, magnum cum laude. He has a 4.0 average in theology. He's proven himself to be of such a a stature in which um, God would benefit from his activity and his service. The answer is no. That Jonah, like us, are sinners born with a rebellious nature. Given long enough, the fruit of it will manifest in the branches of our lives. And what Jonah deserves is not a word from God, but judgment from God. But what God measures out is mercy. And what God measures out is grace. As He calls him and instills in him a word from heaven in in this fellowship and communion with the God creator himself. And he not only stays the just punishment of lawbreakers, but with undeserved favor, God gives according to chapter 1 Jonah a call. And an employment in service that the angels long for. To trumpet forth the majesties of our God. But if that wasn't enough, chapter 3 is unique. In that grace not only comes once, but grace comes a second time. It it was also that the word, it's what he says there in verse number 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Not only is Jonah an undeserving sinner and rebellious in his nature and and, and undeserving of grace, but he's a rebellious child giving proof that he doesn't deserve grace at all. I mean, we have a man, a prophet of God, uniquely called, experienced the mercy of God, not only personally, but also nationally. He's been used of God. He knows what communion with God is. He understands and has experienced it on a level in which most other people could not... um, could not um, 
had not experienced, but his, with his arrogance and pride, he puts himself in direct opposition of the Lord. This is a man who is in blatant disregard for God's word. He has inexcusable disobedience to the clear will of God. He has a mighty storm thrown at him like a javelin, a great fish prepared for him, and he's entombed in the belly of a fish. Yet God brings to him another word. God recommissions him and employs him in that great office once again. Note this, that doesn't always happen. What I'm not going to argue today is that God always does that. You know? That God always just takes our sin and wipes it away as if it never existed and that doesn't affect your life. I'm not arguing that this morning at all. I'm just arguing for some unique purpose that God displays and extends grace to Jonah because he has a purpose in it. Um, that there will be times in our lives, there will be times in the nature of my life and in the nature of this church and church life altogether, um, that there will be times that sin will affect in such a way that um, men will be disqualified. Women will be limited in how they can serve. Why? Because sin gives scars. Scars that are noted by those that are within and those that are without. And in God's prerogative and in the life of life in the church, um, that there will be limitations upon our ministry because of the nature um, of our sin. And let me just say that, that that is not a slight against anyone. I, that is grace. Even if you're in that position, note that you have received more grace than you could have ever imagined. Imagine just for a moment that had Jonah, that, that Jonah had been vomited there up on that dry land. And God came to him and said all those things that I said earlier. Jonah, like you are forgiven, but, 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 you're, but, but, but the office is done. I don't imagine that Jonah would have been all that upset. I can imagine Jonah going back and, 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 and experiencing the amazing grace of God and, and telling a grand story to his family and the nation of Israel, the mercy of God, that in the midst of his rebellion, how God spared his life. That was more than God should have ever done. See, you can't argue for, for the, you can't presume upon God for his grace. What you can't do this morning is look at Jonah and say, because Jonah, um, because God favored Jonah in this unique way, then God too must favor me. Now you can only argue fairness with justice. That fairness is a quality of morality and justice. That grace exceeds and goes beyond that. And as mercy is given, and God is not required to do it once, nor twice, nor three times. He's not, he's not required to give grace. That when he does it, it is undeserved by nature. And that if it is a given, then we revel in that glory. And if more is given, it is not because we deserved it. And it is not because God was fair and he's meeting it out um, in a judicial type of way. It is because God is a gracious God. And he is truly gracious to Jonah here. Because he would have had every right to send him packing back to Israel saying, I'm done with you, but he does not. And in some way, that's true of us all. Maybe not in the unique uh, realm of giving an official office, but it would have been an abundant grace just to restore fellowship to Jonah 
and allow him to live another day to serve in whatever capacity he had called him to do that. That this grace came a second time. That God is a grace of second chances. And as cliche as that sounds, and I know that it is, because we can Google after the service about 10,000 sermons about the God of second chances. And yet at the same time, I would encourage you that that is the thrust of this text. But it's not second chances in the way that most have demeaned it and demoralized it. Meaning that you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that you failed in that business and you need to give it another shot. No, what we're talking about here is God extending grace to sinners who are undeserving. That God labors patiently and graciously alongside even the most rebellious of His children and utilizes the providence and the Word in a whole capacity in a number of ways to draw, to teach, and to bring His children back into the fold in good standing with the Father. It is a father in pursuit of his son. It is a shepherd leaving the 99 and going after and utilizing every single scenario and circumstance and instrument that he can to, to, to go after that child. And it's just grace. Why? Because when the prodigal son leaves, the father could have said, I'm done. Yet he patiently awaits and endures the disobedience of him um, and receives him wholesale when he comes to the end of himself. That what we have here is a God of second chances. What we have here is a God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. Yet at the same time, when he extends those, it's not because we deserve it and because we're owed that. So do not ever presume upon the grace of God. This morning, do not presume upon the grace of God for even one chance. God was not required to send his son. God's not required this morning to send his son to you. Like if anybody's saved, if anybody hears His voice, if anybody knows the warmth of His embrace, if anybody, and the Word of God comes alive unto them this morning, it is not because of intellect, it's not because of skill, it's not because of strength, it's not because you just have a, 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 a wonderful type of mind that you could put two and two together and somehow you came to that conclusion. It's the holy, the grace of God who has made the Word of God alive to your souls by the power of His Spirit. He has came to you this morning. So if He is coming to you now and probing you and provoking your heart and your mind to Him, convicting of your sin, do not delay. Do not presume that tomorrow there will be another day. I went to a funeral this week that I didn't plan for last. And that's not a scare tactic. That's a reality. Our life is a vapor and today is the day of salvation. And if God is prompting you, if God is drawing you, if God is convicting you, if God is utilizing the Word now, that is one of the means that He utilizes to draw you to Himself. And it is incumbent upon you to call upon the name of the Lord, to obey as Jonah will in just a moment. And not to presume that I'll get to it tomorrow, or next week will be there. Or as a young person, I'll sow my wild oats and I'll do my thing. And when I get in my early 20s with a family, that that'll be the time that I serve and honor the Lord. Now I'm going to have fun. Listen to me. Teenagers will die this week. I mean, it happens all the time. We live in a chaotic world. We live in a wicked nation. We live in a sinful body. And then when God brings to life even in the womb, it is a precious gift. And that is why we fight for them. That is why we long to see every child honored with birth. And that is why we count every year, every month, every day, every moment that we wake up. 
and with the gift of life as a precious gift from God. That God is a God of graciousness and He extends grace to people. Enters into creation with them. And we cannot demand it, nor should we presume upon it. But we can 100% flowing over enjoy it. This morning, if you know of the grace of God as Jonah has experienced to be called not only once, twice, but arguably three times, not only as its conversion, but in the office, he receives a word from the Lord not only once, but twice. Without presumption upon God, it is fully right and good and expected to respond to the grace of God in the way that he has designed, and that is with praise for his name's sake. And that too is with obedience to his commands. And that's what you're going to see. You're going to see that not only do you see this commission of the prophet, but you see this conformity of the prophet to the word of God. In verse number two, you see, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you, that recommission. So Jonah, what are you going to do? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One of the great um, distinguishing characteristics of true restoration and fellowship with God is conformity to his word. It is conformity to his word. I'm not so much convinced that Jonah's fellowship is restored because of his grand and lofty prayer in chapter 2. I know of men and women who have probably prayed more eloquent prayers, memorized more scripture, strung it together in eloquent ways, and did it with bottles of tears. And when conflict is resolved, they turn back to their lifestyle. They vowed vows that they will never keep. They've made, they've given thanks when truly all they were ever thankful for was, mer- was the mercy of God, um, but not truly experiencing the grace of God in such a way that it would produce in them the works of conversion um, and an obedient life. Um, that one of the reasons I'm convinced that chapter 2 has any credence Um, is because chapter 3 is followed by what seems to be immediate, willful, submissive obedience. Jonah doesn't argue with God. Jonah doesn't negotiate with God. He doesn't say, God, I need you to consider a few things. Maybe I should go back to Israel. Um, You know, maybe we should get a team together. After all, you don't know what the Syria is like. Um, you know, just the studies that we've done, they're the most violent of all the nations. I mean, here's the reports that we have. Maybe we should have a team and a strategy. Um, I mean, if I go, I'm surely a dead man. I mean, what's our, what's our contingency plan? Um, and I'm not sure that the message is quite what it ought to be. After all, doesn't that seem um, to be a little bit harsh? Let's, you know, can we, can we talk this over? Um, there's more prophets back in Israel. I mean, there's a guy that I know who's much smarter than I am. He has more, um, he has more uh, experience in this field. And I just don't feel quite ready. Like, he doesn't do that. You know? The message has came. And he's heard it. 
And it so gripped his heart in such a way that what you see is that immediately Jonah arose from where? It seems to be dry land. It seems to be that he's vomited out on the land. He's, he's able to get his faculties together. And now the word of the Lord comes. And, and the word of the Lord comes with his command and commission, where he's recommissioned to go and to preach the message that he tells him to preach. So Jonah arises, goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It seems that in every respect, Jonah obeys God. That Jonah fulfills, he cries out in verse number four, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, that, that, that the argument is, is that chapter three gives in some reality credence to chapter number two. And that's what you see all throughout scripture. You know, this is not just an argument from Jonah. This is an argument from the whole scripture, particularly the New Testament. And that what you see is that you see conformity to God's law is in some sense essential um, to restoration and fellowship with God, not, not to accrue um, stature with God, but as a result of the activity of God in the life of a soul. Um, there, in this abiding in Christ, this branch grafted into the vine, that that life flows forth and fruit comes. That that's the reality. It is not that it is necessary for salvation in the sense that you need it to gain stature or, 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 or favor with God, but that you obey as the outflow of the favor that you have found with Him. That as God is active in the life of that soul, it prompts him to believe God in chapter number 2. That the seed that was lying upon the hardened soil of his, his inner man is now that that soil is broken up in such a way that the seed that lie dead upon his conscience now takes root in his heart and it springs forth as it germinates and eventually produces the fruit in, 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 in accordance with godliness. That's the idea. That chapter 3 is the outflow of the reality of what God has accomplished in chapter number 1 and 2. That, that the message is effective and that what springs forth is the fruit of God in the activity of the hands, the feet, and the mouth. And this is true for you and I. I you know, as much as I love a passionate plea, and as much as I love a broken, um, a seemingly broken spirit, and I love eloquent prayers and, and great sermons, and that's not alone the things that make true Christians. Um, it, is a, it is a recognition and acknowledgement and an understanding of the grace of God in the life of a man. And as he fellowships with God and abides in him, he expresses that love towards God in an obedient life. The word of God, the, 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 the commands of God are not grievous to the true children of God. And they're not a burden that to be bared and which you can't cast off. It's not waking up day in and day out and saying, oh, I have to do this again today. Although there's days like that. Um, that is not the, the consistent testimony of the life of the believer. That when God is active in the soul of a man and he's abiding in him, that fruit comes forth by the power of the Spirit and love is produced. But love is more than an affection. Now, how many Christians I've met, and I've probably been those on some days, that put more credence upon emotions and affections and a warm feeling than we do on wholesale commitment and sacrificial service. <coughs> But sacrificial service and wholesale commitment and acts of service are the proof that love is truly taking root in your, whole and when it, in your soul. And when it is ripe, there upon the tree it is to be picked and it is to be tasted and it is to be sweet and it is to be nourishing. And that's the reality with love. 
That the fruit of the Spirit is more than just these, these um, warm affections in our souls. That love, when it comes to full fruition, is, 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 pick, is ripe and picked and, and finds its, its culmination in acts of service. Joy is more than just being happy. It's more than just a contented feeling on the inside and a blessedness, a sense of feeling. That joy, whenever it culminates by the activity of God and the soul of a man pours out into his lips in the presence of the congregation as we sing praises unto our God. Joy that never finds its end. I mean, it's not really joy much at all. But, but, but it is joy that cannot be contained, that, that finds its, 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 its fullest expression in that praise unto God, in that testifying, that testimony um, unto others. That we see that Jonah, Jonah's prayer has some credence. At least we have great at least we have hope now. We can't say with full certainty, yes, this guy's a saved man, but we have great hope. Why? Because the expression of a broken and a contrite experience concretely finds its expression um, in a life in conformity to God's word. Revelation chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, or I mean uh, the, the church at Ephesus. You know, what is his counsel to them who have all their doctrine straight? Um, remember, repent, and return. Return to those first works. Get to work that a true Christian is a working man. A true Christian is a working woman and working in the area in which God has given him. So Jonah yields in obedience according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh, he goes to Nineveh, verse number 3, that great city exceedingly a three days journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter that city on the first day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what you find there is the details of Jonah's obedience. Jonah is seemingly a changed man. And he follows God not only in the big picture, but even in the details. So Jonah goes and Jonah preaches. He proclaims. He proclaims that message that God gave him 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I don't think, I'm going to give you my perspective here. I don't think that that means that Jonah went around and just preached that kind of like a broken record. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he stretched three days journey in a day. And he was just a broken record. Now, God can use that. And God can do what he wants to do with that. And God can convert a whole nation with that. And maybe that's exactly what God did. Uh, maybe that's exactly how he went. Um, but I'm convinced that there was that that was the substance of his message. That, and that the, rest, and that the rest of the message flowed from that. And the reason that I believe that is because it seems that when the king responds, um, that there's some things that the king knows that are not actually in that little phrase, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That he recognizes a whole host and his responsibility to God and a whole host of other things. Um, it, se it seems that, that, that there was more to the message, but not anything in contradiction to the message. Very well could be that, that Jonah, going through the city, just expounds upon those 40 days of destruction. And literally, he preaches to the people and not just against the city. You know, in chapter 1, there's a difference in chapter 1 and 3 with actually the command that's given. In chapter 1, the, co the commission is, go preach against the city. In chapter 3, it is, arise, go to Nineveh and preach to that great city. 
that, that within the Hebrew text, there's actually a change in the commission. That as he recommissions him, he, he recommissions them not only to preach against their wicked evil, but to preach to. We don't want to make more of that than what it is, but there is seemingly a change. There is a difference between preaching against and preaching to. And Jonah would preach to the Ninevites 40 days and you'll be overthrown. But I'm convinced that there was more than that as Jonah preaches to them. Not only that, but, but, but what we have is um, in the New Testament um, a reference to this portion of Scripture. You'll remember if you've been with us, it's in, uh, I think it's in Matthew. It's, it's definitely in Matthew chapter 12. It's in Luke chapter 11. And we read these words. For as even Jonah became a sign unto the Ninevites... So shall the Son of Man be to you a wicked and a perverse nation. And what our Lord Jesus says is that Jonah as a person was a sign to the Ninevites. The idea is not only that Jonah is a type of Christ and that, 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 that Christ is a, the, that is a sign um, to the Pharisees or the nation of Israel and he utilizes Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly. That's true. But he also says that just as Jonah was a sign to the people of Nineveh, um, I am a sign to the nation of Israel. And what that seems to mean is that when Jonah comes to Nineveh, something about his life is a signpost to them. Um, I'm convinced, again, we can talk about it afterwards, because it is somewhat speculation, but, but I think grown out of the text... That when Jonah arrives there on ground zero in Nineveh, that he begins to preach. And that he stands with that message. The substance of it being judgment is coming. But, but if you'll repent, God will relent and reprieve that judgment. But two, that Jonah stands as a sign. What was the sign? Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. That, that I'm convinced that there was somewhat of a personal testimony. That Jonah would give in tandem or correlation with the word that God had given him to bolster up and to support that. That Jonah may have been preaching through um, through Nineveh, proclaiming those words, and someone would stop him and say, who in the world are you? And he would say something according to, I'm Jonah. Serving Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who just came out of the belly of the fish, who maybe even like our Lord Jesus Christ, bore physical marks in his body, a cold white flesh who had been consumed with wounds um, in that fish, who would have been noted that something had happened. And Jonah is able to point back to the reality and the miraculous work of God as he preserved him from the fish. You know, one of the, the primary gods of Assyria, according to history, and even within the scriptures, was the god Dagon. Dagon is known as the fish god. Um, he was half man, half fish. Supposedly, he and his wife controlled the sea. In a similar way, in the nation of Egypt, God would send ten plagues. Um, there seems to be a correlation between those ten plagues and the gods of Egypt. And in some expression, Christians throughout the ages have come to the conclusion that God was proclaiming a message just even in the plagues that God, the Yahweh, covenant-keeping God of Israel, um, was imminent and, and potent and powerful even over the false gods of this earth. Thus, He sends curses upon Egypt because of their gods. In a similar way, it very well could be that as Jonah comes out of the belly of that fish, he stands as a sign that God, 
um, is, is able to overthrow, that their God is impotent. What a message that would have been to Assyria, that the God that they serve, Yahweh controls, and that He controls the seas. And that, that the evidence of that is that three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah survived, and thus he stands as a sign of the miraculous activity of God and the impotence of the gods of, or the God of Assyria. In a similar way, that Jesus Christ, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, comes out of the gates of that tomb with marks in his body, preaching a message of repentance and faith to a lost and a dying world. And he would look back, and, the, and, and, and prophets or the apostles and disciples throughout the ages would look back and say, look at the tomb. He was there three days and three nights, and it's empty. That we stand assured and committed and full of faith. How and why? Because we serve a resurrected Christ. That he, that, that would be a sign. And that, that, he, that Christ would carry that same sign. Or a similar sign. A greater than Jonah, the text would say. That as Christ would be, as Jonah would be three nights and three days in the belly of the fish. God. Jesus Christ would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. That Jonah would fulfill his obedient commission. He would be obedient to the commission as an outflow of God's activity in his life. The activity of the Word of God, take, the Spirit of God, taking the Word of God to his souls, to, to the innermost um, being of his soul. It would take root and germinate. It would culminate in fruit of obedience in his life. And he would carry it out even in the details. And that his whole life would be a sign, an expression of the grace of God upon his life. And it would be a sign and an expression to them of the power of God, of the miraculous work of God, of their accountability to God. And that they should and need to repent, otherwise they'll be overthrown. In a similar way, this too is true of us today. And that we take full um, assurance and grip that reality because we do serve a resurrected Savior, that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, and that He has extended grace to sinners, and that if we'll come to faith by, if we'll come to Him by faith, He will save us and extend that grace to us. Not only a saving grace, but an equipping grace and a call to service. And that He will extend that grace to the utmost corners of our lives, such that to our lives can be like Jonah, not in the same way, but in some way. That as we live out this life, not only will our word but our life be a testimony of the grace of God and stand, aside, stand as a sign, a signpost, pointing our children, pointing our church, pointing the community to Christ, that your life should be carried in such a way of obedience and love, of joy and peace, um, that it testifies to the miraculous word of God. And people take note of the God you serve. Your life is a sign. It matters that you obey. It really does. Again, not so that you can be saved. Um, but because our disobedience proclaims a different gospel and a lack of allegiance to our God. It calls God a liar. We lose credence with the world. And by our rudeness, our disobedience, our negligence, our total abandonment of God, um, the world finds out that they are no different than we are. 
that they can live their life and be just as good as we are um, without God. God is utilitarian in some sense for us. But for them, they don't need Him to be a moral person. We need to live life in such a, in such a way that the world knows that the outflow of my character and nature is a display of God's grace and mercy and in wholesale dependence without Him. I could, live, I could never live such a life. Not that you may receive the honor and the glory, or you may be put up on a, a pedestal, but that in your dying to self, you live, and Christ lives in you. The power of the resurrection takes root in your life, and the rest of the world take note. Jonah comes off of the shore, just a miraculous activity of God. He walks into that place and they take note. This guy, he's a son of something greater than my gods. Um, God did a work in him. And there's power in his message. And we must believe. And God does an amazing work. Listen, God can do the same with you. God can utilize you where you're at, in all of your impotence and all of your inability and all of your insufficiency, God's grace is enough um, to be displayed in your life such a way to say to the world, we serve a God who can save. Why? Because he saved me. And, and my obedient life is not because I'm earning favor with God, but it's because i got a father who loves his son and he just continues to lavish it upon me, not only once, but two times. And let me tell you about this third time and this fourth time. And it may not be all that I want to be, but I'm all that he desires for me to be. And that's a powerful message to a lost and a dying world. That's a powerful message to your children. And it gives credence to the word. And God often uses that means as a canvas to write upon the word with, or write upon that canvas the word with power and intend them together. God uses those means and the power of the word to convert sinners and to save souls of whom we are chief. So let us go. Let us recognize that grace. Recognize that the providence of God and what he's accomplishing in us actually makes us much more fit for the task, right? Jonah, man, he wouldn't have been a sign had he not entered the fish. I'm convinced that the word would have went forth with power, but God uniquely designed it um, so that he would go through that. And that Jesus would even utilize that later to bring others to Christ. Trust God, even in the storm. Trust God, even in the fish. Um, that it is not his judgment coming out upon you as you stand the bar, but it is a father loving his son. And even in that, although we don't wish for it or long after it, those difficult times and those dark days, God will use um, to even fashion you and to make you a powerful witness to a lost and a dying world as you embrace the providence of God in your life. And, what, um, and the gifts that he's given to you, even though they don't seem like gifts at all. Um, and that is God's message to us this morning. May he use it um, for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ, for all that is contained within him. Father, we revel in his majesty and glory now. Father, as I, I look into other people's lives, I just... I just see amazing grace. But Father, I also understand that sometimes it's deceptive. Um, because that may not be grace at all. And that's discouraging. Yet at the same time, Father, I do know of the activity of your son and my soul. Father, that is not deceptive. Um, so help me to lean, Father, upon the grace that you've extended me. Help me not to wonder and speculate and um, die a curious man. 
struggling with all of the insecurities of my own soul and utilizing the circumstances around me to be even more secure, wondering if you love, wondering if you love me. Father, in those days, take those precious promises from the Psalms, from Romans, and proclaim them, Father, in such a way to draw me and your people, Father, back to yourself in full fellowship with them. Father, utilize whatever means necessary, whatever providence will allow, um, to fashion a pulpit to proclaim to us the majesty and authority of God, that it may soften the soil of our hearts, that your, uh, the seed of your word may take root, germinate, Father, and culminate in the ripest and sweetest of spiritual fruit. Father, that we may taste and see that the Lord is good, but too, that we would stand as a sign, and that others too may see the display of God's glory upon our life, as he has written all over it his love and his righteousness and his holiness. And Father, as they look into our lives and the life of this church, may they not see men and women who are powerful and capable, but may they see trophies of grace. May they truly see, Father, that you chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. May they see that you truly chose the weak, that your strength may be shown forth in them. Father, um, we need you to accomplish this. We need, Father, for you to display your glory in whatever capacity that you seem necessary. In that moment, Father, I know we'll buck. In that moment, I know, Father, that, it's, that we will initially strive to deter. Uh, but, Father, may it, not be, but, but may it not be long before we see your face, feel your hand, know your love, see your purposes, and fully yield and submit to the plan that you have before us willingly embracing every gift of God for our good and for your glory, knowing that that's the best thing, Father, for our children, for our family, for this church, and for the community. Father, help us never to wonder of your, about your love. Father, help us to know it with full confident assurance. Help us to grab it by faith um, that we may be able to endure all things. Um, with confidence and faith, fully obedient, because we know that every good gift comes from heaven. All things are orchestrated by our Father. That chastisement, while it's pain for a season, uh, will yield righteousness that could no otherwise not be attained. Lord, we need your understanding in this, because honestly, on most days, I don't understand. Even in the midst of that lack of understanding, give us a heart of faith and obedience, Father, that will be powerful not only in our own lives and in the lives of all those around us. Father, accomplish this work in your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, let us stand and sing.